Hello everyone, I'm Kate Braug and this is The Pivotal Moment. Together we will talk to 100 of the most inspiring and powerful women entrepreneurs in New York. They will tell us about what it takes to set up your own company, how to be the architect of your own career and how they are reshaping the business world. I'm an entrepreneur myself and I'm looking forward to hearing their stories along with you. Brooke Shields, Ashley Graham, and Carmen Electra are just a few of her celebrity clientele, although she keeps most of that list a military secret. Cosmetic dentist Dr. Pia Lee has transformed the smiles of Hollywood's rich and famous. She is the ultimate guest for this podcast because not only is she an exceptional entrepreneur, she's also the epitome of the American dream. She was born in Romania under communist rule, and her and her family were forced to flee the country, staying in refugee camps in Italy until they were accepted in the United States when Dr. Pia was only seven years old. In the US, she studied cosmetic dentistry, and now she's responsible for the teeth of royal family members, Fortune 500 CEOs, Victoria's Secret supermodels, and many, many more. She's known as the Michelangelo of smiles because she emphasizes the importance of sculpting and shaping each tooth by hand. She was recently hailed as the Tooth Fairy by New York Magazine and has been featured in newspapers and magazines from the New York Times to Harper's Bazaar, Elle, and has appeared on television many times. And today I'm very excited to have her as a guest on The Pivotal Moment. Dr. Pia Lieb, welcome. Thank you, Kate, for having me. You grew up in Romania under communist rule. What was it like growing up there? Do you remember anything from that time? I do remember little bits and pieces. I have gone back and visited because one of my grandmothers was still there until she passed away. You know, communism was basically a wonderful theory that Marx had on paper. And unfortunately, in practicality, it never works because human nature, people are not all the same. People cannot be equal. They tried. They really tried to... uh, maintain a very status quo, but it never worked. And communism is no longer thriving except for North Korea. And we see where that is. And what was the catalyst for your parents to flee the country? My aunt in the United States paid a Swiss lawyer for four paper visas for the adults. So that would be my mother, my father, my uncle, and my aunt, and then two children, myself and my cousin. The visas were for Yugoslavia. We were able to get visas from the Romanian communist government to go to Bulgaria to visit Bulgaria. They were, let's just say that the visas and dollars were placed in body orifices in order not to get caught. My, my mother was the carrier and my aunt was the other carrier. My father was the only driver. He drove 68 hours and then we stopped in Yugoslavia to get gas and he was so tired. My mother was massaging his neck and his shoulders the whole entire time from behind him. We got to the border of uh, Yugoslavia and Romania, which is Trieste, and we basically uh, put our hands up and asked for political asylum, and the Italians took us. It sounds like you vividly remember that trip. I, 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 I remember a lot of things. I remember eating in Bulgaria at a, at a alimentare, uh, where they would serve food on a tray, like at uh, the cafeteria in school. I remember having my long hair cut off because I had it in a long braid and it got so tangled that my mother chopped my hair into a bob from sitting on (laughs) it. That is traumatic. So traumatic. Um, I remember that my parents would eat everything that was left over on on, on my plate. 
because we were so limited and um, we only had $500, which it had to get us through gas and everything and food. And after that, you lived in a refugee camp for two years. I lived three months in Trieste. They run you through to make sure you're not a criminal in Romania. And then they put us in Latina, which is about 40 kilometers outside of uh, Rome. And that's where we waited for the Americans to give us the green cards. Because back then, immigration was much easier than it is now. I find this whole system now is just a mess. We stayed in a refugee camp until we were screened, until we were approved, and then we got on a plane, and when we arrived at JFK Airport, we had green cards. Right, and how were those refugee camps? Because I've never been to a refugee camp. How should I envision the spaces you lived? Did you share a room with your parents? Were the camps equipped with proper bathrooms, facilities? What was it like? Well, it was, it was it, yes, it was like the three of us were in a room. I remember that we had shared bathrooms, like no one had their own bathroom. And my parents would cook, you know, we would have like the little round heating elements that you could cook food. My dad worked throughout whatever odd jobs he found. Actually, he was working building street for a private contractor. And my mother used to clean this very fancy perfumerie, and she was their cleaning woman. So they worked outside of the refugee camp? Right. I went to an Italian kindergarten. I learned Italian, and I did kindergarten and first grade in Italy. And what lessons do you think you've learned from experiencing being in a refugee camp and having to flee your home country so early on in life? I have no fear. Whether it's jumping out of a plane or work or taking risks that people would not do so much, I'm just not afraid. I think that because I've went through so much at a young age, I think it just made me more resilient and more determined. And I think it embedded the philosophy that I can never give up. Do you really don't feel fear? Some, like maybe a slight thought in my head, you know, in the back of my head, maybe my subconscious. But then I always have this philosophy in life that if I don't get out of my comfort zone, I can't get to the next level of being a better self in every in every aspect of my life. Right, not just professional. Not just professional. I think you need to get out of your comfort zone to do things, whether it's fear or something that you don't want to do. But I think that if you're able to understand that only then can you get to the next level. And then once you get to the next level, you look back and you're like, wow, that really wasn't as bad as I thought it was. Right. How did you go? So we went from fleeing Romania to living in a refugee camp. And then you became one of the most coveted cosmetic dentists in the world. What was your main driving force? Oh, do you really want to know the truth? Yes. <laughs> a 50-something-year-old, arrogant, cocky, self-centered cosmetic dentist who made me cry for five days. Five days. <laughs> I was in NYU dental school, and I had not finished. And this cosmetic dentist who did Paulina Povaskova's smile, I cut out of one of the classes, and I wanted to attend his lecture, and I did I don't know if it was the fact that I didn't look the part. Maybe that was a little bit because I was... You have to understand, this is the 80s, okay? This is not the 90s. This is the 80s. We were five women that graduated NYU. 
in one year. The rest were all men. It was a man's world. And uh, I was blonde and I looked like I look now, but a lot younger, 25 years younger. Basically, I think that, you know, that might have been another issue, especially for the for men back then when they were God. And I went up to him and I said, I absolutely worship your work. It's beautiful. Please tell me, what can I do? How can I become the best cosmetic dentist? And he basically turned around to me and said, you're either born with it or you're not, and walked away. And I just fell apart. So I was heartbroken. Of course, he was one of the top. At that time, there were only three in the country that were doing what he was doing. Wow. And so after those five days of crying, what did you, what did you decide? That I'm never going to give up. And I studied every art book possible. And I started taking every courses that I could. And I went up at the uh, American Academy of Cosmetic Dentistry. I went up to one of the lecturer and I met this incredible ceramist. And he took me under his wing. I used to go to his laboratory and, I, and he would teach me everything I, I know today of how to become the, you know, a true sculptor and color, shape, size, everything. Here I am 20 years later teaching at NYU and uh, I heard that he had this lecture and I went down in my lab coat, scrubs, ID and so forth and so on. And he said, does anyone have any questions? And I raised my hand and he said, yes, who are you? And I gave my name. And he's like, yes. And I said, listen, I, I, I just would love to thank you. And he was, of course, ego and uh, do tell. How? For what? I, I, I know your name. Yes, you know my name because I have a lot of press and I do television. I'm sure you know my name and I'm your competition and I'm a woman, but you don't really know who I am. So he said, do tell. So I told him the whole story. I said, you know, you made me cry for five days by telling me that, but I wanted to thank you because you pushed me to learn and to become who I am today. If you weren't so direct in your response, I think I approach, I would have never probably worked as hard to compete with you. Uh, what did he respond? His mouth dropped. Sometimes <laughs> payback's a bitch and you have to wait 20 years for it. That's a, that's a good lesson. Do you have more lessons you learned along the way? Yes, a lot. As a matter of fact, working in a man's world, which medicine, dentistry, a lot of other professions in the 80s and in the, the 90s, we really had to elbow our way to keep our composure, keep them respecting us, showing what we're capable of doing, and kicking them where it hurts without them knowing, I think is pretty much the secret to get up the ladder. What are the things you would advise women to do? I think the problem nowadays is I think they're overcompensating women. Instead of approaching men in a warm and friendly way of saying what you really want, I think now they, they've become a little too assertive and I think men are freaking out. And I think that they're threatened. And I think that in the corporate world, if you're a big female hotshot, 
even till this day, you're going to be called a bitch. But no CEO that's a male is going to be called a bitch. And what would be the right way to deal with that? I think you should disarm them 100% of the time. In other words, if you want to get something done or have them do what they're supposed to do, I think you're supposed to disarm them in, you know, putting a positive, look, I, you've done a great job at this, 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 but I maybe modify it and let's try to go in this direction instead of saying, I need this and I need that and I need this and I need that. Right, so be kind about it. Be kind about it. And smile and, 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 you know, be a little bit, you know, maybe even crack a joke. I had more sexual harassment than you can possibly imagine teaching at NYU. I was blonde. I was 23 when I started and I wore dresses. It's like the jokes were everywhere. And I would just joke back with them. Like if they would be like, oh my God, I would, you know, love to take you out for dinner. I'm like, well, I'm sorry, but you missed the train. I'm married and I don't think my husband wants to join. Like, that's how I, I handled them all the time. It was always that slippery slope of, I put my foot down when I needed to, but when they were getting with this sexual harassment nonsense, I, I always put them in their place like that. And it worked. And it still works. Out of challenging situations. Over to something else. When we met a while ago, we discussed a pivotal moment that made you decide to pursue a career in cosmetic dentistry, which was because of your boyfriend at the time. And he studied dentistry, you didn't. You went to a lecture with him or a class, and the teacher of that class immediately saw your talent um, and said you were a true sculptor. The theme of this podcast is the pivotal moment. So I wanted to ask you what other pivotal moments you experienced in your life. And that can be anything from a bad, very bad experience or a great accomplishment or simply a shift in mindset or something else that prompted your life to shift direction. Did you have any of those? I think moving to Israel as, as my ex-husband was offered uh, a very great opportunity to specialize in head and neck surgery, which only they only take one candidate every four years. So I decided to sell my practice in 94 and move to Israel with him while he's specializing. And I arrived, I took a sabbatical from NYU, I sold my practice, I moved to Israel, I started teaching at Tel Aviv University right away, I think the second week. But everybody there was like first name basis, there was no protocol, the patients would call you by your first name. I was like revolted, I'm like, what did I go to school for? So I think that that was a major shift, seeing how Israel is really like a combination between Europe and the Middle East. It's very difficult to work there. Nothing gets done. Nothing. Yeah, that sounds frustrating. That's why I came back after four years. It was like, I felt like I was taking one step forward, two steps back. I came back in 98 and I took my position back at NYU and I started all over again. I mean, I opened up an office in Tel Aviv. Um, I left it and I came back and I started from scratch again. So I've had three times that I've started my practice from scratch. Wow. And uh, your husband, did he stay? He stayed. Well, once I came back, I just realized that maybe we don't have as much in common after 15 years as we thought we did. Let's um, talk about dentistry because you've built an impressive clientele from Victoria's Secret models to Fortune 500 CEOs to real royal family members. How do you build that list? 
You know, it, it's word of mouth, obviously. No, I think the times are changing now. I think when I, when I began, it was that. And then I also, because I travel, I love to travel. I also meet so many people that then they come in as patients and then their inner circle and their inner, you know, it, it just, it's almost like it just grows and grows and grows. Uh, but I think now things have shifted and I have to say that I think now 60% of the referrals, the, the new patients that come in are from the website and from Instagram of what they see my work as before and afters. And press. Right, so it's more, more the online presence. And um, what other skills do you need to be successful in this industry? Thick skin. No one needs to have a perfect smile. You can get by with a functional smile. The problem is no one really needs it. It's it's um, it's a luxury. Um, it's a luxury. It's like plastic surgery. Nobody needs plastic surgery. And I thought this was quite funny. New York Times Magazine named you as a tooth fairy, which is very cute. But what is the secret to a perfect smile? It's proportion, shape, and size, and how it fits your face. Because sometimes we're born with wrong teeth that don't fit our, our faces, having spaces in between, or having teeth that are too large, or having teeth that are too narrow. I think that the, the, the secret is that golden ratio. You have to have that golden ratio. And teeth are part of the golden ratio. It's, it's the whole face. You can't look at it as just teeth. It has to match your face. And do you do all the work? How does that work? A patient comes in and I photograph them extensively. And I see it instantly. Like for me, it's, I hate to say it, I was born that way. Like I see a patient when they come in, I see them finished in my eyes of what the result I want to do. But that's just me being an artist. It has nothing to do with dentistry. So when the patients come in after taking uh, extensive photographs, I like to take the molds of their upper and lower arches and then I hand sculpt out of wax. It's really like art. It is art, it's, it's sculpting. It's not painting, it's sculpting. And what I do is I basically design what I see in my head. So on top of that, I make like an imprint, an, it's called an index. And then when the patient comes back for the second visit, I put that over their natural teeth It, out of plastic, you know, we put like a little plastic material in there that gets hard in like eight minutes and the patient's actually able to see what they can potentially look like in their mouth directly. And no one really does that. A lot of them just do, a lot of the dentists are just lazy. They just do the digital, you know, uh, design, but on a photo, but that's, I, I just feel that it's like hair, like we women with hair color, you can look at a hair color you might like in a magazine, but until you see it on your own head, it's not the same thing. So I took that, I, I, I like to, I love what I do and I'm very passionate about it. And I always put myself as a patient, how would I want to be treated? And like hair color, I would like to try my, um, my smile on. And that's, that's why we call it the Dr. Pia method because nobody's ever thought about, well, why don't we do this so the patient can see it before they decide whether they want to spend the money because it's not you know having a smile makeover is not cheap it's the price of a car what kind of car 
depending. It can go from 40,000 to 150, depending on what you need. And then you have the perfect smile. And then you have the perfect smile. Um, apart from impressive clients, do you also treat normal people? Of course. It's like I don't... Every patient I see through the same eyes... Everyone to me is an equal, whether you're male, female, uh, white, yellow, brown, black, Asian, doesn't matter. Everybody comes in with a, a request, a vision, and everyone gets treated. Doesn't mean that everyone can afford it, but usually the people that come in, they know pretty much what the ballpark, what they're looking for. Right, and how long does it take from... Roughly, from start to finish? Um, depending on the situation. If it's something that's very clear and easy, it can take three weeks, two visits. If it's something a little bit more complicated, it can take maybe three months, four months. Okay, so we all have our own home remedies to maintain a white, a white smile. Um, and mine is quite embarrassing because I drink out of straws. <laughs> so coffee and other liquids don't stain my teeth. Do you think that helps? Oh, your stomach is going to have so much more gastric acid because of that. Oh, that's not good for your stomach. Really? Yeah. You're not diluting, you're not putting any saliva into your stomach. Huh. That is, okay, that's an interesting, <laughs> off the record, that's an interesting fact. On the record, it's also an interesting fact. But does it help the teeth at all? Well, it helps. You actually drink red wine out of a straw. I drink everything out of a straw. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. Uh... You're going to get drunk a lot faster on alcohol. Too. I mean, that's a, that's a good side effect. <laughs> that's a good side effect. So if you would have to give people tips and tricks or, or home remedies. Obviously, hydrogen peroxide. I, the, the thing that I recommend right now is the Crest Whitening mouthwash, the Glamorous White. Uh, that has peroxide in it. And I like Colgate Optic came out with really nice... Um, stronger toothpaste that also contain hydrogen peroxide, anything that contains hydrogen peroxide will help you remove the stains off your teeth. Anything else, and lift the color, uh, anything else will only just remove very little of the stains, unless it has peroxide, because it's like bleaching your hair. You need to lift the color out of the actual tooth structure. Right, and of course there's the fear that your teeth get too sensitive. Right, but the amount of peroxide that this has, it's not like the professional grade. Uh, the amount that this has is really not that bad. Okay, moving on to something else. Um, you've worked with victims of abuse, I'm, I really like this, by giving them a smile to help them find their voice and to transform their level of self-confidence. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Well, you know, I think that, first of all, the first thing that people look at you, believe it or not, and this is a fact, this is not something that I'm just saying because I'm... Uh, a cosmetic dentist, but the first thing that people look at in your face is your smile and your teeth. And I think that whether it's abuse or whether you were born with a malformation, which is technically also very difficult to live with, uh, I don't think you have the self-confidence to go up against someone that is slightly more perfect than you. And I, and, and I think that everyone should have the same opportunities in life, such as I did, you know, coming from nothing with $50 to our name to the United States and being where I am today. I think everyone has the potential to do it with a little bit of help. And if you can help these victims of abuse, and especially majority of majority, I would say, are women because they get physically abused by their husbands accidents, 
that happened. I've had two taxi partitions where they broke their face up, um, making an illegal turn on a red light, and the client in the back went through the partition, things like that. But you just, you make them feel whole again and give them the self-confidence that they can achieve anything that they put their mind to. That's beautiful. And are you still involved in that? I'm always involved in that. I'm I'm always, uh, I have uh, Give Back a Smile with the American Academy of Cosmetic Dentistry. Uh, we've had a few candidates. Unfortunately, the last one was a hoax. That defeats the purpose. <laughs> and what things did you wish you knew when you started your career? To stay calm. Stay calm. And not let anything get to me and just bounce everything off. What are, what are things, what are examples of things that... Listen, it was, for me, you have to understand, it was the 90s. I, I was competing with men, men, and men. And sometimes I would get frustrated that I wasn't achieving the promotion of, at NYU or achieving the same amount of lecturing time. I would lose my temper a lot faster than now very... Few things make me lose my, my temper because I'm in such a headspace now that there's no reason to get upset. Stay calm, stay focused, no emotions, and fix it. Right. So set aside your emotions when you feel them? That is probably the key that I wish I knew back then, that I'm never allowed to have emotions in business. And what was the biggest mistake you've made? along the way? Probably selling my practice and moving out of New York to please someone else instead of pleasing myself. What would have happened if you would have stayed here, you think? I think I would have been bigger and better. Right, and thinking of that now, what do you decide? I should have stayed, I should have never left. It was an experience, I mean, I've learned a lot living in the Middle East for four years, but I think the biggest problem that women have is that we're so malleable and we have a tendency to be pleasers and nurturers that sometimes we do things for others and forget about ourselves and then it comes back to bite us. Listen, everything happens for a reason and I, I really am a firm believer in that and the fact that you learn from every experience and you are who you are today because of your past experiences. but. I just feel that in that moving away, I stood still, or better yet, I might have even moved back four years. Because I had four years that I sold, and now when I came back, I came to zero. So I feel like I'm starting all over again from all, like zero. And I just kind of feel like I lost like eight years for something where he could have chosen another hospital in the United States and we could have done long distance or we could have done this for long distance. I think we have the problem as women that we put ourselves last, especially like I don't have children, but the women that do have children are even worse. Um, everybody comes before you. And I think that one thing that I would love to spread the, the, the love about is that you have to love self in order to be loved and in order to be in a good place in your life. If you are not happy with yourself, then change and make yourself the best that you can be. But getting into a relationship with someone that promises you that they'll take care of you and promises you the world if you move, 
you lose that independence and that feeling of I've achieved something that I really wanted. And if you are in that relationship, you're going to be codependent, whether you want to admit it or not. You are codependent on someone if you make such a big myth, at, at least for a period of time. Right. But you broke out of that. I did. I broke the pattern and started all over again. So let's go from the biggest mistake to something more happier. What was the best moment of your career? It's between telling that dentist (laughs) (laughs) or the New York Times article that called me the Smile Boutique. Probably the New York Times article. Yeah? How did that change your life? I I kind of feel like, you know what, I've worked really hard and I've made it, you know? I've... Everything, all the seeds that I've planted are starting to bloom. And can you remember the exact moment that that article came out? No, because we got the paper back then. It was like, I remember that they sent us the actual newspaper before it came. When was that? Oh, 2008, 2009. And when things like that happen, like accomplishments happen, how do you celebrate? Probably going out to dinner with friends. That's my usual go-to. And how long does that feeling of euphoria last? Everything lasts for a day. Come on, nothing lasts forever. You know, that's why you. That's why I tell everybody, just sleep on it, you'll be fine. Tomorrow will be another day, you know. You forget about it. It's just that one day. It's like anything else, like, get it, like your wedding day. It's only one day. And in a city like New York, being a businesswoman, how do you combine personal and work life? I have a really good balance. I just, I don't mix church and state. What do you mean? When I'm done in the office and I lock the door... I'm done. I don't work from home. I don't, uh, even though everyone has, uh, every patient has my cell phone number because it's that kind of practice. I turn off. Once I lock the door to the front door to my office, I'm, I'm, my head switches off to personal. Yeah. So you mentioned that when we met, how do you do that? (laughs) You have to make it a point. You just have to tell yourself, that's it. Stop thinking about it. Deal with it tomorrow when you're in the office. So you, what you're saying is that you can be successful if you don't work around the clock. I think working around the clock is you get burnt out. I don't think your focus is the same. I think the key is, yes, I mean, yesterday we worked 11 hours. Okay, don't get me wrong. But you have to have balance. That's the key. So my secret is I sleep minimum nine hours. That's my secret. Nine? Nine minimum. Weekends, even 11, 12. It's really interesting because I had a conversation about this with a friend of mine, and I, I sleep quite long. Like, with seven hours, it's not enough. Oh, no, seven hours don't speak to me. <laughs> and other people can just go by with four hours. And I can't even speak on four hours. <laughs> Seriously, I can't. I don't have that. Like, if I have seven hours of sleep, I'm not. My brain doesn't work 100%. And so other than sleeping, what do you do to relax? Well, I do meditate especially when I come home and I've had crazy days. I just like to disconnect and just meditate and just clean my head. I love to run away on weekends, which is my go-to now that we can't travel anywhere. Having lovely dinners and dinner parties with your friends, traveling, and really to relax. I, I really do feel that after a long day, just taking 20 minutes to meditate, you don't need more than that. Just clean your head is really the key. So what do you do when you meditate? Do you use an app? I'm so hyper and type A that I went with a patient of mine that I did her her teeth and she was American living in Israel and we went to four girls at the spa and it was meditation. I'm like, okay. And 
I was like, what? I can't. And they were all like, come on, you just, just get into the zone. I'm, the teacher comes to me and goes, you really can't. I'm like, no. She goes, I have a solution for you. She brought me a candle and she said, just look at the flame and you'll go into it. And since then, I did it like that at the beginning with the flame. Now I just find a spot. I just look at a spot and I can just go into it. But the flame of a candle is the easiest way to go into meditation. Really? Incredible. Just stare at it. You'll just fall in. I'll, I'll try that tonight. <laughs> it's so easy. Like, even for a super, super, super hardworking person. Yeah, now I do, like, the fireplace and at night or a candle at night. But during the day, you could just zoom in on one little corner and just zoom out. Let's see if I can calm my busy brain down. <laughs> and what about your role models? What, who did you look up to when you were a child? I didn't have any. I know this sounds crazy. I didn't. And throughout your career? They weren't my role models. They're, I was just so competitive to beat them. I don't want to say that they were my role models. I mean, the, the top three cosmetic dentists, they weren't my role models. I just wanted to be better than them. I, I can't say I, I ever had anyone that I want to be like. I just wanted to be me and the best version of me and very competitive, like really competitive. And I take it like I, I'm better now, but when I was in my 20s and 30s, I would take it personally. Oh, my God, that one got an article in Vogue and I didn't. By the way, I still haven't gotten Vogue. You haven't gotten Vogue. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't gotten Vogue yet. Apart from uh, appearing in Vogue, what is something you still want to achieve? I truly still want to be the best female cosmetic dentist in the world. That is something that I'm still working and um, striving for. So in, to become the best um, female cosmetic dentist in the world, what, what do you have to do to get there? You're constantly learning. You're constantly learning. There's always a better way to do what you've been doing. Always. So it's very important that doing everything in your power to improve yourself, whether it's taking courses, reading books, um, getting creative and come, trying to come up with new ideas, how to do an old procedure, then you need to stay emotionally and, and spiritually balanced. I think that's really important in life because if you do stay balanced, the everyday stresses that we all deal with are much easier to handle. You're in a good place in your heart and head. Last question. If you could choose anyone in the world, dead or alive, <laughs> who would you like to have drinks with? <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to be completely, completely superficial. And I'm going to say Piers Bronson. I can't. I've had a crush on that man since I was a kid and he was in um, the TV show. What was it called? I'm blanking out. Uh, I'm not interested in any politicians. I'm not interested in... No, I'm good. I think he would be the one. And, and this would be a romantic date, I assume. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> oh, of course. Nothing else. I'm not going for a platonic date. <laughs> But unfortunately for me, he's married. And fortunately for him. So uh, it's not going to happen. But yes, that would have been a really nice uh, thing to do. To have a romantic dinner with him somewhere. I think uh, that is a great, great choice. Dr. Pia, thank you so much for being a guest on this episode of The Pivotal Moment. Thank you, Kate. It's been really a lot of fun. 
For everyone at home, thank you so much for listening today. Next week, I'll be speaking to Carrie Miller, award-winning philanthropist and co-founder of venture capital fund Overton VC.